The British learned a lesson. Don't mess with the house of Hancock. Hancock's ship, the Lydia, arrived with a cargo from London. It was the first of his ships to arrive since the British developed and committed to enforce a new tax. And two tidesmen, Owen Richards and Robert Jackson, were hired by British commissioners to enforce the new taxes on shipping called for by Parliament's Townsend Act. They went to board the ship. Hancock rushed across town to try to prevent them from boarding the Lydia when he heard, but was too late, acting on rumors that there were teal, paper, and other dutiable articles in the hold of the brig. Richards and Jackson boarded the Lydia. Hancock arrived, though, about an hour later, and then ordered the ship's master, Captain Scott, not to allow Richards or Jackson to go below deck and look for the articles. The tidesmen went away. Problem over? Well, not exactly. One of them, Owen Richards, returned at night and made his way into the steerage. Hancock was informed by the residents of the wharf, most of whom owed him money, owed him favors, or just liked him. They got together about eight security men and a lantern and boarded the ship. Who is on my ship at this hour, he demanded. Owen Richards identified himself as authorized by the British commissioners. Hancock demanded Richards' credentials then. Once handed over, and Hancock looked at it, he saw his commission had no date. No, an authorized person would have a date on their papers indicating term of service for the British government. So, acting on this, Hancock pulled the inspector from below the deck and had his muscular men bring him up above, manhandling him. Then he said, you can search up here if you want, but not below. Richard ran. Now, Richards wasn't exactly the Prime Minister of Great Britain. He was a small, poorly credentialed agent of a subcommission of a commission. Yet, manhandling Mother England's agent could be construed as the same as manhandling Mother England. Hancock had just begun the hostility that perhaps would lead to revolt. And now the question the British government would have to answer is, had he just subjected himself to criminal prosecution? But at least Hancock had warned the British... We've referenced before that the Stamp Act was one of the actions that first got the colonies in protest with the mother country, but not yet separating. But it was the Replacement Acts that Parliament introduced after they had to withdraw the Stamp Act and got upset for having to do that, that really upset the colonies. The Declaratory Act of 1766 was particularly insulting to Americans. It said that Parliament ruled in all cases whatsoever in the colonies. That's not the way the colonies as British citizens with full rights sought. Their property could not be taken, they said, without representation. They had no representation in that parliament in London. Attempts to give them representation were not successful. The Tea Act of 1773 put a tax on that product, and that led to the famous Boston Tea Party, where tea was dumped into Boston Harbor. After that, there were a series of acts in 1774 aimed specifically at crushing resistance in the colonies. These are called the Coercive Acts. These acts were particularly made to make an example of Massachusetts. There is the Boston Port Act, which closed the Port of Boston. There is the Massachusetts Government Act, which eliminated local government in Massachusetts and gave authority to the royal governor and the crown to appoint officials. There was the Administration of Justice Act, which said, and this applied to all the colonies, locals could be tried anywhere. If charges were brought against an American, they could be tried in another colony. A Massachusetts subject could be tried in Virginia where there would be no jury that they knew, or they could be brought to London for their trial. It was, according to George Washington, the Murder Act, which allowed the British Army to harass subjects and not be subject to trial themselves. 
Then there was the Quartering Act, which allowed soldiers of the king officially to be quartered in any open building. The British government sought the cooperation of colonial legislatures in securing these buildings where they might be able to house soldiers. The legislatures obviously were not happy about this, having to quarter soldiers sent to oppress them, and they didn't usually cooperate. That Quartering Act allows British troops to seize empty buildings and quarter soldiers wherever they want it a barn, a church building, and used that for soldiers. All of these acts together led to the inevitable, that there would be resistance and an independence movement in the United States. Indeed, in 1776, Lord North, the ruling prime minister, would pass a law reducing any taxes in the colonies and charging only taxes for the purposes needed to directly finance British operations to protect the colonies only. No extra taxes. Too late for the colonists. In February, when they would pass the Prohibition Act, which ordered blockades in American ports, it was over. And war was going to be had at this point. But now we are back in the summer of 1767. All of those coercive acts had not been passed yet, and there's still ships operating in Massachusetts, many owned by John Hancock. Parliament insisted, after they had passed the Declaratory Act that said they are in charge, the Townsend Acts were passed with levied imports on tea, paper, glass, these kinds of things. England sent six customs commissioners and a large staff of clerks to be sure they were getting all the taxes. John Hancock, now a leader of Massachusetts in the General Assembly, made his resistance clear. In a letter to the Lords of the Treasury, it was reported that Hancock is one of the leaders of the disaffected, and that early in the winter he declared in the General Assembly that he would not suffer any of our officers to go even on board any of his London ships. Well, with the incident on the Lydia, he had acted on his threat. The commissioners immediately inquired of Attorney General Jonathan Sewell whether the owner of the Lydia was subject to prosecution. Sewell, however, was married to the Quincy family, who were, like many in Massachusetts, good friends of Hancock. And on investigation of the law, Sewell discovered that there were many loopholes. For instance, the Townsend Law authorized customs men, and by inference their contractors, their tidesmen, to go on board a ship for the twofold purpose of searching her and observing whether her cargo was being put ashore. But the statute didn't say whether going on board the ship meant on the deck or in the hold. So, since Hancock's men had brought the agent up to the deck and allowed him to search there, of course he refused, they just kept him out of the hold maybe the prosecution wouldn't work here. Legalese, but good enough for Sewell to advise against legal action on the ground that it might in the end be rather prejudicial than advantageous to the interests of the Crown. The royal solicitor probably was influenced by the temper of the people in Massachusetts and said that though Mr. Hancock may have not conducted himself so prudently or courteously as might have been wished, from what it appears no prosecution is required. Hancock's legend, already big in Massachusetts as a big and powerful man, just got bigger. On the night of the Lydia incident, a large crowd, presumably attracted by all the noise, the sound of the scuffle at night, and the angry voices of Hancock's musclemen, had gathered on the dock. Hancock was escorted to the wharf. It was everything Hancock could do to persuade the men not to go parading through the city in the middle of the night. A meeting was held where 98 Boston traders began the opposition, and in 1768, they agreed to non-importation as a protest. Hancock was one of them, and placed on a committee of nine to report at the next session, the best means of carrying that out. Thus began his career as a revolutionary. 
Hancock is well known, the merchant, the patriot, the president of the Congress who signed the declaration, the largest. Yet if fate hadn't intervened, John Hancock may have ended up in the family business, being a reverend, and perhaps we would not remember him. Not for lack of roots, the Hancock family went all the way back just after the colony's founding, the 1630s, when religious dissenter Nathaniel Hancock came from England and was given a two-acre lot behind a marsh and told if he didn't improve it in two years, it would go back to the town. He did, started a family in Massachusetts, and got into preaching. The grandfather of the first signer of the Declaration, John Hancock I, was a reverend with a small parish and a small farm provided out of his parish salary in Cambridge. Not a rich man. But soon his congregation grew to thousands of people. And one of his sons, John Hancock II, father of the Patriot, decided to become a preacher as well and went to Cambridge to study. But John Hancock I had another son. Thomas Hancock decided to go a different path and get into business. And he was great at it. Best ships, finest cargo. The way to get product from London to Massachusetts and back was to go to Thomas. Oh, and all those restrictions about not selling Dutch products? No problem. As Royal Governor Hutchinson would later say about him, his importing from the Dutch West Indies great quantities of tea in molasses hogheads, which sold at very great advance, and by importing at the same time a few chests from England, he freed the rest from suspicion and always had the reputation of a fair trader. But it wasn't just tea buckles, ribbons, and brass compasses, fire steels, hourglasses, larding pins, swords, leather, lime, salt, or even, heaven forbid, that citrus fruit of high value, an orange. He sold everything. And it isn't just what he sold in his shop in Boston. He had customers all over Massachusetts and in Connecticut, and a few in New York and Philadelphia, too. Thomas dressed nicely, too. Nice satin, green, even purple often a plumed hat, that stood out in plain-clothed Puritan Massachusetts. Eventually, even the British crown would become his customer, Edward Cornwallis, uncle of the future general, as governor of Massachusetts, was forced to get credit from Hancock for construction materials. This was because Cornwallis had funds from Parliament, but had outspent those funds. Hancock agreed to the loan, but at high prices, and eventually Cornwallis would complain bitterly about it to the king. When war broke out in 1756, the French and Indian War, Thomas Hancock got into the gunpowder business, sensing war he had ordered ahead, and showed the first connection between money and politics. He became a spokesperson against the French and for war. For God's sake, he said, let us root the French blood out of America. By age 30, Thomas Hancock had earned a fortune and bested competitors. And John Hancock, his nephew, was sent to apprentice over summers with him, where he learned his trade in the busy compting room of clerks. Kind of like a human computer. The books and mail, written on quill, required constant but necessary duplication. Thomas would dash off a rough draft on a piece of scratch paper. A scribe would make a clean copy of it for posting, but before sealing it, would copy the contents into a letter book. The old 18th century CC. John Hancock's father died young. And so, John Hancock's Uncle Thomas adopted him, and he entered for good a new world, Boston, thriving, 1,600 homes, a busy port, 500 ships a year, 
coming to its port with dock workers bustling market at Faneuil Hall. The air was rent almost incessantly with the noise of patent medicine peddlers, fishmongers, chimney sweeps, town criers, the clop-clop of horses' hoofs on cobblestones, the clatter of cartwheels, and the ringing of bells could be heard everywhere, and always, except in the very dead of night. Gongs were struck often to summon firefighters and to signalize the repeal of obnoxious London laws. Chimes were played to call citizens to meetings. Handbells were run in the street. The town was chock-full of pubs and taverns, which were not just for drinking, but for business. The Royal Exchange, the Crown Coffee House, the Bunch of Grapes, Luke Vardy's, which would be the future scene of the so-called Boston Massacre, the stately Blue Anchor, where the higher-ups went, or to go slumming. The sun and half-moon, the golden ball, or even the green dragon, the future home of Sam Adams and his rabble-rousers. Thomas and John would frequent these pubs, certainly for business, but where Hancock lived was now above all this rabble, at Beacon Hill, higher than anything else in Boston. The hill was higher then, even than it is now, if you've been to Boston and seen Beacon Hill. The hill was shaved a bit to fill the back bay section of Boston. So it was majestic at its time, and only the rich lived there, away from all the noise. Not yet a rebel, Thomas Hancock was making quite a bit of money off a contract with His Majesty's Agent for Transports during the French and Indian War. He had authority to pay enlistment bounties to seamen, to provision vessels, to hire freighters for the service of the crown, and to appraise their tonnage, to issue sailing orders, and to discharge crews from their return from the voyage. Hancock was supplying the British Army and Navy. The House of Hancock grew to larger heights when, just as the French and Indian War was ending and his fortune was built, Thomas's battle with gout ended and died, and John Hancock, now just 30, was his heir. He inherited an estimated sum of 80,000 pounds, the equivalent of at least a million dollars in modern purchasing power at a time when few would have that kind of purchasing power in the American colonies. Hancock then became the money man, the funder for a lot of the revolutionary activity in Boston. Loyalists call him the milk cow for the faction. John Adams said it more plainly, perhaps. Sam Adams wrote the letters. Hancock paid the postage. Starting with a $1,000 donation, to a Stamp Act protest, Hancock would foot the bill for most of the activity in Boston. He supported much of the rabble-rousing that preceded the official war here and supported Sam Adams and others with his personal fortune. The British only increased his fame when they singled him out and singled Sam Adams out for capture and prosecution. He and Adams fled in 1775 to Lexington, and there, the twin battles of Lexington and Concord began. Hancock and Adams were exempt from an amnesty order that General Gage had offered to Americans who swore allegiance to the crown. They could have been hanged if captured, or at least subject to some humiliating conditions. But they were not. Adams and Hancock went from Lexington right down to Philadelphia, being the toast of every town along the way. And when John Hancock went to take his seat in Congress, a Virginia delegate... Benjamin Harrison, wealthy Virginia landowner and the ancestor of two American presidents, suggested that Hancock replace him, Harrison, as the president of Congress. 
Let's show Britain how much we care for her orders by making John Hancock our presiding officer, Harrison said. Hancock, of course, accepted. He did play an important role in that body, yet the signature that he put on the Declaration of Independence would be his last big claim to fame and how he's remembered in history. And what a signature. Not only one larger, but more flourished than any other. He would fail in his attempt to become general of the American armies. That honor would go to George Washington of Virginia. Not everything could be run by Massachusetts, even though Massachusetts had certainly led in the rebellion. Hancock would be elected governor of Massachusetts. And after balancing viewpoints in that state on the constitutional question, he would see that the proper amendments were added to the Constitution, then Massachusetts could support it, and he, Hancock, could support it as well, and ensuring that that document would get at least one large state behind it. But he did not, however, get what he wanted, to become President of the United States, again losing out to the former general now, George Washington of Virginia. Had Virginia not adopted the Constitution, it's likely Hancock would have been in a good position to become President of those United States who signed. He remained a member of Congress until 1780, though he spent much of his time in Boston, and for the rest of his life he solidified his political power in Massachusetts. In 1778, as a major general in the militia, he commanded an expedition that failed to recapture Newport, Rhode Island from the British. But he made a more tangible contribution to the American Revolution by accepting continental currency from his debtors even though that currency had depreciated enormously in value. It had value with the House of Hancock. His fortune had already been dented by wartime-induced reverses. Hancock would help to fund the initial Patriot activity and would help to fund the war as well. Residents of the Boston that Hancock's family made its fortune in and where he increased that fortune would have barely noticed a man carrying a sack of malt through the streets to his family's brewery. It's unlikely that they could guess that later this man would become a famous politician and founding father of a nation. Nor would they suspect that the sack carrier had a Harvard education. Big deal, even at that time. Samuel Adams knew he had a gift for speaking and writing. Yet he was from a family of merchants. He went to Harvard first to become a minister, but instead he was fascinated by politics and Greek literature. His teachers encouraged his study. Ideas of politics and the Enlightenment were reaching Harvard at this time. His master's thesis at Harvard was on whether it would be lawful to resist the king. Quite a thesis. When he graduated, his father had made him apprentice in a financier's business. Well, he was really no good at this. Disorganized. Sloppy. Eventually, the financier fired him, telling his father that he thought he was training a businessman. Not a politician and speaker. Samuel Adams' father lent him money to start a business. The business failed. And when it did, he ran the Adams Family Brewery. And not all that well. Most of Adams' time was spent not running the brewery, but on his newspaper, the Public Advertiser. As early as the 1740s, his Public Advertiser was complaining about England. His father also named Sam Adams, was not disappointed by some of these sons' failure. In fact, he was proud about his newspaper activities. The senior Sam Adams was a Boston local politician and, while not a revolutionary, chafed at the British treatment of Bostonians. 
His son Sam, though, was a little bit quirky. He delighted in poverty. He felt it was like the Greek or Roman statesman doing more for the service of others than themselves. He almost couldn't be successful in business. Adams published the first pamphlet in 1764, 12 years before the revolution, questioning the parliament's attacks on the colonies. Adams was great at stoking fires, calling the shooting of five Bostonians a massacre, and making a famous print of it. It showed Boston soldiers coldly mowing down residents. Not exactly what had happened. It was a dispute over two groups of people competing for work at the docks. Soldiers needed to get part-time jobs. The British Army paid them to a little, and that brought an angry mob. But the version that would be in the public advertiser is the version we remember in history. He beat an incumbent member of the Massachusetts Assembly who was seen as too moderate. Samuel Adams running on the issue of opposing Britain's taxes, and he became a member of the Whipping Post, a local group of residents involved in politics, a little bit of a lobby group and political network that soon became necessary to get elected in Massachusetts. Adams would build the first networks between the colonies, and he would be an example for Colony South. Men in Virginia and South Carolina were looking at what Adams was doing. He particularly became famous with his propaganda event at the Boston Tea Party. Sam Adams didn't personally participate. He didn't dress like an Indian and throw the sacks of tea into the water. But he was associated in organizing the event and made a speech before and after the event. Obviously, Sam Adams came to the Pennsylvania courthouse ready to vote for independence and making some strong speeches, inviting other delegates from other states to do the same. Adams would be remembered more of a figure before the Revolution than after the Revolution, though he did have a career. After the war, he would become more of a moderate, supporting the Constitution at least after a Bill of Rights was added. A former rebel, he would support the crushing of a rebellion, the Shays' Rebellion in western Massachusetts. Yes, rebelling against a king was one thing. Rebelling against a democracy of free men was another. In fact, he said, the only punishment for the rebels was death. Adams would run unsuccessfully for Congress, and he would lose to a member of the Federalist Party, but he would end up serving as Massachusetts governor and was strongly opposed to the Jay Treaty with England. He was much more in favor of our former ally, France, and in politics he was closer to Thomas Jefferson than even his cousin, John. In fact, when John became president, 1797, Sam Adams was resigning from politics, and he would die in 1803. John Adams made it clear, without Sam, the true history of the American Revolution could not be written. Samuel Adams' cousin, John, was formerly a moderate, in fact, earned fame as a lawyer for defending the soldiers of the so-called Boston Massacre that his cousin had done so much to create propaganda about. And John Adams would defend them successfully in a colonial court. With this moderate reputation, he would serve several times to be an envoy between the patriotic forces and the Massachusetts royal governor to attempt some type of peace. John Adams and Samuel Adams, as we said, were cousins. They were among many descendants of Henry Adams and his wife, Edith Squire Adams, of Somersetshire, England, who were part of the great Puritan migration to Massachusetts in the 1630s. Henry and Edith had nine children, including eight sons. One of the sons was Joseph, great-grandfather 
of Samuel and John Adams. One of Joseph Adams' sons was John Adams, who became a sea captain. He had a son named Sam Adams, who in turn had a son named Sam Adams. That is the famous revolutionary figure. Another of Joseph Adams' sons was named Joseph Adams. He had a son named John Adams, who in turn had a son named John Adams, who would become revolutionary figure and second president of the United States. The story of John Adams' conversion to the independence movement is a story of the moderates converting to the independence, particularly in the state of Massachusetts, where the British had focused most of its coercion. When all efforts were exhausted, John Adams then became a fervent supporter of American independence. He was working actively to convert people, delegates at the Continental Congress, to his cause. He seconded Henry Lee's motion for independence. And when John Dickinson resisted independence, John Adams gave a speech in which he said, We are in the midst of revolution, the most complex, unexpected, and remarkable of any in the history of the world. This was a moment. Every delegate saw this speech and was influenced. Richard Stockton stepped up and called Adams the Atlas of the Hour. After the states had voted for independence, Adams would be part of a team along with Ben Franklin and Edward Rutledge of South Carolina, who would meet with General Howe after the approval of the Declaration in order to work out some kind of peace deal. That would go nowhere. He would serve on many committees, but most importantly, the committee that would supply the army. While Franklin got much of the credit for diplomatic efforts towards France, it is only recently that we've seen the results of John Adams' diplomatic efforts towards the Netherlands, particularly the bankers in Amsterdam, who also helped to finance the American Revolution. As we know, John Adams would become vice president of the United States and then for one term, president of the United States. After the revolution, he would have the task of becoming minister to England and would be the first American citizen to address King George III. Sir, the United States of America have appointed me their minister to your majesty. It is in obedience to their express commands that I have the honor to assure your majesty of their unanimous disposition and desire to cultivate the most friendly and liberal intercourse between your majesty's subjects and their citizens. I think myself more fortunate than all my fellow citizens in having the distinguished honor to be the first to stand in your majesty's royal presence in a diplomatic character. And the response, according to John Adams' letter to John Jay, I wish you, sir, to believe and that it may be understood in America, that I have done nothing in the late contest but what I thought myself indispensably bound to do, by the duty which I owed my people. I will be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation, having been made and having become inevitable, I've always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. Let the circumstances of language, religion, and blood have their natural and full effect. In a sense, this meeting in 1785 completed the American Revolution that had begun in the Declaration of Independence and began a relationship, sometimes touchy, but usually as an ally, between the United States and England. I want to thank you for listening. If you like this program, please give us a positive comment on iTunes. It always helps other people to find the uh, program. I also do a program called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, where I discuss current politics and apply history to those events. That's at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, or you can find it on iTunes. Thanks for listening.